Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast... I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Russell Kane is a writer, comedian and actor. He hosts the BBC Radio 4 podcast Evil Genius, as well as his own podcast Man Baggage. He has won the Best Comedy Show Award at the Edinburgh Comedy Awards and is currently on a UK-wide tour of his comedy show, The Essex Variant. Today I'm excited to talk to him about the letters he would send to three people who mean the world to him. Hello Russell, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Oh, you know, can't complain. I'm in Birmingham, so I'm always happy when I'm in Birmingham, not in London. No offence to people from the South, but the North is better. Yeah, it is. And that's where I live. I live in uh, Cheshire, which is basically Essex on Manchester, I call it. It's better, though, for family and stuff like that. It's not better for almost everything else that a Londoner loves. I just got my hair cut today in Manchester, not in like some idiot salon in a high street in like rural Cheshire. I went into proper like dirty factory quarter, trendy, trendy hairdressers in Manchester. Now, compare that to the one of the most expensive postcodes in London, Covent Garden. It is double the price to get your hair cut in Manchester. So all I can assume is, and it's the same when you try and go out for a posh meal, they rip you off a bit more. It's up north, isn't it? So it's like 30 quid for a main car. There's less competition. If I go out my house, I've, I've got a little place in London as well. If I go out there, I can get my fade touched up at the African barber or the Greek barber, maybe eight quid. Here, if I want my fade touched up, 20 quid. So it's more expensive. I can't believe that this is a revelation to me that it is more expensive in Manchester than it is in London. Probably all right in Birmingham, it's probably big enough. The dining scene as well. I miss being able to get in a taxi or on a tube and get off and there's could be five award-winning shows around me. R- restaurants, I could go United Nations. I could probably eat a Liechtensteinian sandwich and then have like a Japanese potato for dinner. I just love that world of culture and food. That's what I miss. Yeah, but it's better to live up north because... I once got lost in Cheshire. I was driving back from Manchester and if there's anything that makes you hate the South, if you drive from Birmingham to London, it will take you no time and the road is beautiful. The M40 is like the dream road and driving from Birmingham to Manchester, which is closer, is enough to make me want to kill myself. 
and I got lost and I was driving around what you're describing as the Essex of uh, Manchester and I must have been on the road where all the footballers lived because these houses were phenomenal. Yeah, you were in Audley Edge or Presbury or somewhere like that. Yeah, it was like it had like a hall, like there was a posh sounded hall near it, like I don't know. I'll tell you what I love about Birmingham though, you can treat yourself with the M6 Toll Road. It's like <laughs> it's the only time you can drive business class in the United Kingdom. <laughs> Nobody from Birmingham would do that, though. No, no, I know. That's the problem. You don't have a choice. But when when you're coming up to it and it says there is no traffic on the normal M6, it's the same joint. And I still think I'm still going to fucking treat myself. I always stop at Norton Keynes just to, for the, lux- the luxury of it. Everyone in there's chin slightly in the air. Oh, you paid the toll as well. I did. Indeed. Before the road was adopted, and it's actually still a pri- it's privately owned, the M6 toll road. My husband, this was, I mean, obviously when they were like teenagers and that, uh, young men, maybe not teenagers they you could there were no laws on it so you could go and razz your cars up and down the toll road it's pretty much the same now it's pretty much (laughs) be honest with you the police leave us to it knowing we're a higher class of driver (laughs) (laughs) i'm always really pissed off when i accidentally end up on the m6 toll road i'm like that shit i'm on the bloody toll road and the, la- the last bit of it is like, you know, when you're traveling economy and you have to walk past all the posh business seats on the flight, that's what the last bit of the toll road is like, because the, the normal M6 is humiliatingly next to it, all clogged like my fucking late uncle's arteries. And then, uh, and then you're sort of cruising past in the business seats. Well, no one has ever delighted in the M6 toll road to me before. So this is, this is an absolute <laughs> first. So this podcast is all about letter writing and thinking about the people that you love. So do you write many letters? Um, I don't really, unless I'm sort of doing them with my daughter as a game. Like hand, we handwrite a lot of things and we make up books and things like that. But I can't remember the last time I hand wrote a letter and posted it. It's been a long time. A long time. Did you do it more when you were a kid? Like to say thank you to people? I just think the internet has replaced that. Email has replaced it and something's been lost. There's something in the texture of a letter. I mean, I keep quite a lot of things. I've got a lot of photo albums and trinkets and just to see a letter in someone who's deceased's handwriting, for example. Whereas if I got an email from someone that's deceased, it still like can be comforting to read it or eerie or however. It's not the same as seeing how their hand has laid that ink on that paper. Have you ever stopped to think when you were writing? I wouldn't stop to think about it. I was like writing something like with a pen. And like I just You weren't helping Raina write Tory scum on the side of the pop. <laughs> no, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't daubing something with excrement. <laughs> And I just was like, isn't it funny that my hand is just doing this, like tiny movements and it's making words and I'm doing it really, really fast. And it doesn't look like I'm doing anything. And yet it's writing down amazing things. Well, all the evidence suggests it's a complete accident because we're not wired to do it as creatures. We have no hardware or uh, inborn, innate, should I say, ability to, to write or read. It's completely foreign to us as a species and what we've got in our in our brain, which is why it's such a fucking bastard to teach a kid to read. It's not like war, it's not like walking or singing or laughing or fighting or all the other things children would do instinctively. And some skills are drawing. We're definitely made to, to, to draw. We are not made to read and write. Uh, it's something that has to be learned. Indeed, there are you teaching your daughter to read? Yeah, we're on it at the moment. It is the most it, nothing. I mean, before the lockdown, I'd say. Um, it was the only time when I actually thought, oh, I understand that it's actually really professional to be a teacher because I was so incapable of teaching my first child to read that like, I'd be like, the, the word is 
like you um, and it's been on every page and there's only one word in this book and it's the word you so what do you think this word is and he'd be like I don't, I don't know I'm like we're just reading it <laughs> but we've got those things because they use biophonics, which is not how I learned at school. But the problem we've got with that is we've sort of moved up north. So my daughter's like a sort of weird hybrid. She goes upstairs to a bath. So she says bath, but she says up. So she's trying to build up a word and she's been taught the sound, uh, you know, like uh, like she sees the word Russell written down. She goes, Russell. what's that? What's Russell? And I'm like, no, that's Russell. She can't, wouldn't read my name instinctively because up here, my name's Russell R double O double S E double L. That's my wife. Now, Russell, this Russell that down this out on Russell. Yeah, I think it is. I don't know that I agree with the phonics thing very often. I think I'm not sure how helpful it is. It's hard to adjust because when we're doing baby letters, I would say m, but we have to say m, not m. And I just can't get my head around that. Mm, yeah, no, it's n. That's why. Anyway, so we're going through all that. And yeah, it is a, a letter is a miracle. Reading and writing is a miracle. And it's also a, a, people forget what privilege is. People forget how many people still can't read. Right. People people be surprised if they knew how many people in the United Kingdom cannot read and write properly. Still, they think it's something from the Victorian age. It's, it's quite high. People come into my surgery all the time who and it becomes very apparent that they can't read or write very, very quickly to me. You know, it surprises some of the people who work with me because they're not used to it. They're not used to the idea of that sort of... Uh, like, we're all quite used to a certain generation having a deficit in digital deficit. But the idea that people can't read, or adults can't read and write, is alien to most people. But I meet lots of people who can't read and write. And so, you know, you get everything, like your vaccine thing via a text message... And people would come in and be like, what does it say, Jess? And, uh, you know... Yeah. Who says, you got terrible. COVID, please isolate. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it says you've won £25,000. <laughs> so do you have any letters that you've kept, like me- really meaningful letters or letters of note? I've had people who've had letters off the Queen, people who've had letters off Nelson Mandela, although it was a curt letter from Nelson Mandela. <laughs> Well, the, the, my main ones, I think, are, are one of my choices for the third choice. I don't want to burn those yet, but I, I suppose, I suppose, like, I don't know where it is, but I have got a letter from Betty Boothroyd somewhere up there. Oh, no way! And that does mark um, the turning point in, in in my life where I went from there's nothing wrong with living in a, a council flat, but so I don't mean to say say it like this, but council flat oik into someone that thought oh, I could get a degree here or do or do something. And, and it was the, what that letter represented, which is linked to, to the first person, actually, that we're going to discuss. So, yeah. OK, well, let's go into discussing her. But I've got some quality Betty Boothroyd related anecdotes. What was she like? She's still alive. Um... Oh, no, no, no. I mean, when she was when she was op- operating, she's 92. I looked her up the other day, funnily enough, because I'm, I'm just about to off the back of what happened there. This week, I'm um, getting involved in a scholarship with a college which is going to be named after me. Because of the back of what happened with Betty Boothroyd back then. So I'll, t- I'll link all those dots for you in a second, but yeah. So, well, basically, so Betty Boothroyd, is, she was a member of Parliament in the West Midlands, even though she's from Dewsbury, like um, West Yorkshire. Yeah, so she she's quite local to the seat that I have. And I met her, she sort of made a beeline for me. She does this with quite a lot of new members of Parliament. And she made me go to the Lord's Tea Room with her. 
She's not been well, so she's not been in Parliament so much recently. This was about five years ago. She sort of like got in touch with my office and said she must come and have tea with me. So I went and had tea with her. And uh, she said to me, she said, now, how often do you go to your constituency? I said, oh, you know, I live there, Betty. And she was like, oh, what are you thinking? Familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> She's like, no shit, I've got contempt for everything. That's why I'm going to be badass at my job. Yeah, so she was really like, oh, gosh, you, you live there. I was like that. Yes, I live there. A good riposte to that is contempt breeds change. <laughs> that could but, be yeah. the new Labour slogan. Contempt <laughs> breeds change. Jones. Vote Jess Phillips. <laughs> Bill contempt. Um, I do feel contempt all the time. That is the thing that makes me want to change things. You're exactly right. Right, so who is the first person you're going to pick? So the person who means the world to you, who would you pick to write your letter to? My first choice, but someone who means the world, world to me, is very much alive and well and has since flourished in her own sort of creative career. As they say, a teacher is really important and can change your life. Well, nothing against my school, but school was a bit of a waste of time for me. I sort of... I understand why comprehensive schools are the fairest way, that everyone should get the same. And I'm happy to have paid the price I did for it to be fairer for everyone else. I mean by being a bright kid thrown into a bunch of weed-smoking bullies who then decided to not do well because it was cool. But it would have been nice if there had been an option for me to be creamed off on a selfish level. You know, my mum went to a secondary modern, my dad went to a secondary modern, my wife went to a secondary modern because she's from Trafford, which still goes on, my mother-in-law, father-in-law, brother-in-law, all failed 11 pluses. I, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that's a good thing. I know what that does to everyone I love and care about. I'm just saying, as soon as I got to 11, 12, my value system inverted, game over. I just about scraped through school with a few Cs, enough to jump back into education when I was 21 and I realised my life had taken a wrong turn. At this point, I was living at my nan's in a housing association flat. There's a single room, so there was, you couldn't have a wardrobe. So I had like the sticky on hooks. Do you remember sticky on hooks you can buy in multi-pack? So I hang my clothes on the wall. I described it as like I was being haunted by my possible outfits. <laughs> Raving every weekend, hard house, off my tits, depression by Tuesday, working in a watch shop. And I think that's what did it. I'd fallen into a job just to make money of selling Rolex watches to incredibly posh people, mostly tourists, but 20% very posh, very white English people buying graduation watches. It's time for your Patek Philippe and Rolex, son. And it, and it started to dawn on me that I was actually made of the same DNA as them. There was no difference between me and them, uh, or them and I, should I say. The only difference between us is where we were born. And I'm like, oh my fucking how fucking dare you dice of fate the final thing was through the smoke this really fit girl i have to describe as pulled me one night the road just handed me her phone number and that was that we were in love and banging 24 7 and but she was at uni she was posh fit tall all the things i wasn't but i was waking up at uni halls and seeing like people like called oliver and stuff like drinking cider on a lawn and people clutching texts as they as they as they walked across grass at 10 a.m on my day off and there was me dragging myself out of bed 7 30 a.m like an old man aged 19 with my shoulders humped over my cheap suit to to be swearing under my breath on a train on the way to i was like what the fuck i've got a, been given a gift here i can string a sentence together there's no di why can't i do that and i realized all i needed to do 
was redo one because I'd gone to twenty one. I contacted the local local university where this it was basically so I could be close to this girl. That's, that was the level of thinking. <laughs> so that, but it was all, slightly romantic slash. Yeah, but also, but also, but also close to where my nan lived. I wanted to stay, tr- tr- you know, close to the Mandem and close to my roots and all that. And the uni said, look, because you're 21 and you've done well at the interview, you get one A-level, A or B grade, we will take you on this, this English degree at Middlesex Uni. That was it. It was like someone punched a skinny Anthony Joshua in the face and every muscle on my body went... I went home and I started to hoover. This is not like an 11 year old who with working class parents and Dickens was in the house. And this is a, this is a, a, a lost 21 year old who can't even, doesn't know, have no vocabulary, smoking weed, who suddenly was switched on fucking late, about as late as you can be switched on. And like, I'm going to uni. And I got the fastest ever A grade from enrollment to A level sociology. And that's when Betty Boothra gave me my award and my letter for that. A grade at the National Extensions College, who I'm still in dialogue with today. And indeed, this week I meet with trying to set up a scholarship for other people like me that don't realise you can do an A-level studying from home. You can work. It was out of a box. I did this just before the internet. So uh, then I went to uni and it continued there. This angry, I couldn't call it a positive. The, uh, the, it was the opposite, I described the opposite of a nervous breakdown, a sort of nervous connection, but not healthy, angry like learning words on cards. I was like, someone used the word impudent. What does that mean? So I'd write it on a card and I'd have to look up the pronunciation with the diacritic mark. And I'd have all these cards I was reading on the toilet, impudent, belligerent, bellicose. I didn't know what any of these words meant. So I learned them manually off fucking cards, getting up at 5am to read Jane Austen, even though she wasn't on the syllabus. I just aced it to a fucking first. That is unbelievable. As somebody who went to university when you were meant to, I did no fucking work. I did nothing. But I was coming back from never having done any work. You obviously had the GCSEs to get there. Yeah, I did. I'd stop, I stopped reading and dropping out when I was 14, 15, 16 and smoking weed and stuff. So, but what happened was at the end of the first year, I was acing, I was getting first on all my modules in, because uh, I was good at showing off about post-structuralism and Roland Barthes and deconstructing text. But I wanted to be a creative person and end up doing something like copywriting or journalism or like I've ended up doing, comedian. And I could not get on the course you tried to transfer in the second year so that's when i said to maggie but who's the person i'm nominating the poet and novelist sometimes she publishes under maggie brooks i said i know you've sent my short story back and said basically it's shit and you're not suitable for the course please give me some FaceTime, please and i went in that room and i sat down with her and sue g who's also a very talented novelist multiple award-winning novelist and i just came to life i dialed back the pretension i got to grips with my my gift which is an ability to phrase things in a way other people might not have thought of. That is a monetizable gift, whether you sell cars, as I did at one stage with it, i.e. As, as a Land Rover was one of my clients when I was a copywriter, I mean, or whether you do journalism or whether you're a comedian like I've ended up being. It was a gift and Maggie just backed me and then my grades went from really high for the academic to low on the creative to equal to, in the end, I was the only person that got a first in the third year. The only first for the, both the creative and the literature Do you think that when people go back, like, I mean, I did no fucking work at university. I put no effort into it. I didn't want to be there. I I almost certainly was very sort of gift horse in the mouth about it. But my my brother, he went and did his undergraduate degree when he was like 39. And he'd been a heroin addict for many years. And like, he just worked so hard at it. Do you think that there is like this sort of motivation that comes of... I suppose age and also I don't mean this in a nasty way 
a sort of chip on oh, your shoulder time, no, that drives you. There's a McCain's factory on my shoulder. Yeah, it's okay. I didn't want to didn't wanna say. Yeah. Fucking rustic fries all day long. And what's annoying is I get lumped in with white white men. It really fucks me off because none of the white men I grew up with have ever done fuck all or ever been expected to do anything. And the most, like, if they're not, they're either unemployed, a couple of cousins in prison. Yeah, he's not all, not all white men are this are, are one lump. So you know, Ollie Ollie Jenkins Smythe, whose dad's a barrister, he's not the same as me, whose dad fucking inhaled asbestos and went in the ground when he was sixty-one. We're not we're not the same any more than someone who is Ghanaian who's his dad's a barrister and his mum's from the Ghanaian royal family it represents diversity in the same way as a Jamaican newsreader might. I would back the Jamaican newsreader all day long. These identity politics thing has been so simplified now because it's become like, like a sort of glittery. Well, we forget class in it. I mean, class isn't even considered in the Equality Act. In fact, there is a, a missing clause from the Equality Act that was about class, but it never got passed into law because they had to rush before the Labour Party lost the election in 2010. The last piece of legislation that was passed was the Equality Act. And the the tenants of the Equality Act, there is actually a big clause that was missing that never got put through because of time that was about class. And that definitely, it definitely makes a difference because obviously, even if you look at all the statistics around like, Poor black and Asian kids will do worse than poor white kids, without question, without question. But poor white kids still do much shitter than than posh white kids. And and to forget that is just, it it would be futile. Exactly, I know. Uh, anyway, so this is the reason why Maggie holds such a special place. And, she could, and some of the remarks that like to come back in the essay, I never forget I wrote a short story about Rwanda. Uh, about the genocide that had happened there uh, from the point of view of a UN worker trying to get trying to get a mother and a baby. I'd never been to Rwanda, but I'd watched it obviously in the 90s when I was younger. And, uh, and I wrote this story and it came back with tear stains on it from my tutor. And that really stayed with me. I was like, oh my God, I can, I've got something here. I've got so much to thank that woman for. And indeed, when I, I just published my, my memoir a year ago, maybe like 18 months ago, and she's one of the dedications in the front of it because those words wouldn't be there were it not for her taking a punt on just another show-off, big for his boots man who wasn't accepted for the creative component. You know, it took a lot to see past that, just another dick-swinging man who thinks he's a novelist or whatever. I was genuinely just wanted to express myself and she gambled right. You know, as far as I know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I'm as far as monetizing words, if you want to measure it that way, I'm earning the best living based off my creative skills. Does she know how much she means to you? I would like to think so because the dedication in in the book was not. I didn't pull my punches, and she, you know, she said she still sends me lovely notes and stuff all the time. Uh, like we're still in contact. Oh, how lovely! So, how would you sign off a letter to her then? I'd probably try and think of a rhyming couplet because she's a very talented poet. And I went to her poetry launch recently. Uh, thanks, thanks for all you've done. You aren't my, but I wish you were my mum. So the second person I asked you to think about was somebody who's no longer here or no longer with you. Who would you dedicate that one to? Well, they are. They're well dead. And that would be my my old man who died. In two, some people are surprised how long ago my dad died, given he's you know, such a big figure. I would love to rotate my camera and show off my shelf with the awards on it, but I fear the camera might disconnect. Most of the awards on that shelf are for shows I've done talking about this man. I'm, he is my, like mine, if you like. 
I go in to my head and mine it. But of course, it's a depleting resource because he died in 2003. So every year I'm getting the photo albums back down, asking my mum for funny stories. And I just find like one last little bit of gold. So he features less and less in the show because he's not generating new anecdotes. And I'm not as good as some comics as making stuff up and making it funny. I'm very sort of autobiographical or it has to be something that's happened in the real world or something that's happened to me, which I could be really funny about. Even though me and my dad were like, we came from different planets. If you put 10 men in a lineup, my dad would probably be the last one you would pick. Tall, blonde, curly hair, blue eyes, bodybuilder. Just, just nothing, just no, it's just nothing in common. Our views are different. The things we like are different. Just, there's nothing. He likes fishing, fighting, rugby. He used to make illegal nunchucks down the shed and then sell them in the pub and then like wear swimming trunks, demonstrating them in the garden while I'd be like learning a dance upstairs that I'd copied off the telly. Once again, and this is not the first time this has happened, <laughs> when you speak about your dad, it just makes me think of my husband. <laughs> my husband <laughs> loves <laughs> homemade weaponry. <laughs> just I'm at, just a, a, a man's man. And unfortunately, he had me for a son sort of skipping around with a glittery question mark over my head till I was 17 and eventually got a girlfriend. That was his two worst fears was either I was gay or vegetarian. <laughs> and, uh, like when, so just to let you know, without any exaggeration, when I did turn vegetarian, as we would be vegan these days, I suppose, the vegetarian, as inevitably all teenagers do at some point. I'm a meat eater again now, I should probably say for the record. I hid it from my old man for two weeks. I was home from uni. That makes me like 20 fucking two or 23 or something. And I hid it from him and had like fake dinners because I couldn't bring myself to tell him I was a vegetarian. For a working class alpha male dad, what that represents, not eating meat and like carving at the Sunday roast that was brought from macro so heavy it probably broke the fucking axle on the transit. It represented everything he was scared of. And so when I said I'm vegetarian, it's like the words he used, it is funny, it's okay to laugh. He did, he, his first words were, who did it to you? <laughs> I've been radicalised or seen a video of a pig, you know. <laughs> And it was a real, it was a real, it, it was a fucking issue for him. It represented the, the, the meat that the man has bought, the roast, you know, pro, my dad's protein, he's a bodybuilder, all of that. It represented so much of what we were different. But if only my dad had survived to see what I've turned this into, you know, we never had, we, we don't get me wrong, my dad trained as um, a lagger. Anyone that knows anything about manual labourers will know that a sheet metal worker in a lagger is a good, a good job. It's probably a fucking 60, 70 grand a year manual labouring job. It's a bastard job down ducks and sweating and putting insulation on the outside of pipes and horrible hours. But we were not the poorest kids in the street by any fucking means. Once we bought our own council house, we were probably one of the best houses in the street. And my dad dug a swimming pool with a hired digger in the back garden. And we had a swimming pool in our garden of our council house, six foot deep, 21 foot long. That is amazing. <laughs> so, but... But of course, me and my dad, we just, we just, we didn't even clash. We didn't have an, even have enough in common to risk a conversation. So there wasn't even a possible to clash. And such was the man's authority. I never would have answered back, tested boundaries or crossed him. So it was, it's just, we just sort of danced around each other. Like, if he was still alive, so how old were you when he died? 20, it was the month I tried stand up, the same month. So I was 27, 27. You were 27. I was 29 when my mum died. So you were 27. If he was still alive, do you think that you would use him in the stand-up quite so much? 
and this is this is the uncomfortable subject for me because it's the king is dead long live the king a little bit because when my old man passed away it sort of gave me permission to talk about things like that without any fear of repercussions but to be honest with you, it wouldn't have made any difference for the first six or seven years anyway because you're not on telly you're just doing gigs he wouldn't have known so i think i probably would have but it took me till 2006 it's Russell Howard of all people that because I was doing all right. I was on this little tour supporting Reginald D Hunter and Russell Howard. I was brand new one, the one no one knew. So I'm stuck out first. I was doing okay. Sometimes I died. Sometimes I, I won. But in the car, everyone was crying, laughing. I'd tell them a story of something horrific. My dad had done some, you know, some alpha male thing from another century and they'd be crying, laughing. And Russell Howard said to me, this, why don't you do that on stage? And that was sort of 2005. And then the next year I did, I started talking about it and they became the funniest bits of the show, but it took me till 2010 to go, right, it's a show just about him. At this point, it's so relevant to what we're talking about. So wishing to keep him alive, I still spoke about him in the present tense for the whole 60 minute show. Did not tell the audience he was deceased. My dad's like this, you should meet my dad. And then at the end of this 2000 show, the one that eventually won the award that I think is the biggest award in comedy, that what used to be called the Perrier Award, uh, I revealed my dad's death at the end under a spotlight and people cried. And I was like, fucking hell, man, I've got something here. It's just on a basic working class level that posher people or better educated people won't understand. I would love to have bought him a posh Mercedes or shown him St. Lucia all-inclusive. He fucking loved an all-inclusive wristband. Once that wristband <laughs> went on, my dad was like, we don't stop eating till we're in fucking profit. By day three, we'll be in profit. Once again, we went on an all-inclusive for the first time, like just the year before COVID. We've always been, we've always gone on like caravan holidays and stuff. And, and my husband was genuinely like, right, we spent three grand, right, on just you two being here. Eat as many ice creams as you possibly can. I do not want to see you without ice creams in your hand at every moment and all branded. It's got to be branded because that's the price. He was like, I can get through it in booze. I can get us in profit in booze, but you have got to do it in magnums. I expect you to eat so many magnums, a magnum of magnums. But the other thing my dad accidentally taught me was this wanky thing that middle class people try and do with fucking joysticks burning, drinking their green tea, is gratitude. You have to train, force yourself to be grateful in the morning. I don't. Every time I open my eyes, I'm like, fuck me, I've won yes. the lottery. Yeah. Never, it doesn't fade. It's not fading for me. I'm listening. There's so many people out there I respect and they have brilliant guests and people that have achieved, achieved amazing things. They all have this thing where they say, and I achieved my goal. And then I was possessed by a depression because I'd gone as high as I always wanted. And now what? I've never had that. Never. I check into a hotel on tour and they upgrade me to a suite. I still skip round naked. I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm still not bored with luxury. My old man taught me gratitude. First time I got a free business class flight, which most people will go to their graves without ever having experience. You cannot, listeners, understand what a business class flight is. Do not let posh people hide from you what is going on in that cabin. It's a full bed. In the, uh, the, the only thing All the food you want, like amazing food. It's, it's part of the holiday. It's, I look forward to it more. I spend more, if I'm going on holiday now, on the flight than, the, than the, the, the holiday itself sometimes. If I can push myself to buy a business class flight, I will. 
And, and I, because for me, it's not a waste. I suck the marrow from every cell of every complimentary white company bit of moisturizer. Every, every bit's amazing. My old man taught me that. When I first flew business class first time and the buffet was out and there was no waitress, I was like, what the fuck's going on here? There was just a pile of smoked salmon and some pincers. I'm like, you're having a lot. It took all my willpower not to bag it. Yeah. My kids still <laughs> do that. Like if you go, take, go first class on the train, you go in the first class lounge, they'll just get their bags and get the fridge and just literally pile everything in. <laughs> I'm like that. Keep it up, lads. So, like, do so it. The, the poor, miserable, probably depressed, hate his life, working class, angry right wing bastard accidentally gave me this lottery ticket, which keeps winning to do with gratitude, to do with how I operate my family. The doors are open, people stay. Uh, we are, we, you know, I just live, live my life opposite to him. I know it's a horrible way to appreciate someone. I was never hit. I was never abused. My mum and dad never got divorced. I never went hungry. My uniform's always fitted. There is no violin I can produce. All I can produce is the opposite of the alpha male to the fucking beta male camp straight guy. But and I'd loved him to have seen what I've done with what with a brain rather than a bicep. When you say that, like, you know, you, you didn't even, you didn't clash because that, that I find, because obviously I clashed with my dad all the time. Not so much my mum, just because she was always right. But maybe I only think that because she's dead. But you obviously don't think that. Dead people are an amazing mind. You're absolutely right. I often, though, like, I stop hate because I'm, yeah, I, like you say, I'm years out from her being relevant for want of a, that sounds horrible, but that's the reality. I paste things onto her all the time. I'm like, I'm sure she probably did say this. She said something like... Yeah, would have. Do a lot of would have what they would have said. You use that tense a lot. Yeah, the would have. Like, you didn't clash with him. Did you feel like he loved you, though? Yeah. So my mum always said, so bearing in mind I've got an A-level, no one in my family, let alone the university, I think, I mean, I've got 17 cousins. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one with an A-level. Maybe Richard or Katie has, but I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who's got an A-level, let alone a degree. That is a lot in 17 cousins for someone not to even get an A-level. So I get my A grade and then I get my first. Only I describe it as the only day my dad ever looked small. In amongst all those educated parents, they sort of looked tall that day, knowing how to talk about posh and fancy things with all the tutors. And my dad, and my dad looked like a looked like a thimble. He looked lost. But and my mum said to me afterwards because it wasn't a very successful day, and my dad rushed out the graduation because the traffic on the M25 is going to be fucking murder, so we can't hang about. And the parking's a rip off. And I was like, well, I just said to my mum, he's just fucked the whole day again being a pig. And she went, he's very proud of you in private. And after my dad died, I realised that he used to sit in, in the Isaac Walton pub with his elbow going on, my son this, my son that. Never heard any of it. So my dad, we <laughs> raised the prospect of dad, I've got a first. And he was like, I'll be in the shed. And he's obviously gone down the shed to show pride in private. How weird. My dad does that there. My dad, like, to my face, he's like... He's never once said, you know, I'm incredibly proud that you got elected, you know. Well, he's a Tory, he wouldn't, would he? He's, a <laughs> he's not. He's like, <laughs> he's like fucking Karl Marx, my dad. Um, the, uh, the, uh, he's like, but to other people, I imagine he's so tedious, like, about how proud he is of me. Like, he'll say to me, I met a woman on the bus and uh, she's a big fan of yours. And I thought, only because you sat there next to me and said, you know, my daughter's Jess Phillips, that MP woman. Like, you're obviously telling people um, he didn't just come up um so yeah I, my dad is very proud of me and proud but i think that's a working class thing and my mum used to describe it about her nan her mom my nan that said if you build someone up she believed like her her son had died when he was nine years old one of her kids and obviously working class families with lots of kids 
is much more common to lose people and for people to die young that if you build someone up too much they get close to the heavens and god can take them away is what my nan used to think that you have to keep people down to the earth for literally to save their lives so maybe that's what he was trying to do to you. Maybe. I, I mean, I know there is a certain type of working class man, like break the child to build the character. I don't think my old man was like that. Uh, I think sometimes if you come from that sort of, like my dad, as my dad always used to tell me, I never had a dad. And I used to whisper, you lucky bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Not in earshot. It's the how you show, like what is love, with a risk of sounding like that cheesy sound, what is love? It's... um. It's shown through hard how hard he works for me and the material stuff that is lavished. Not not like sitting down with a cosy jumper and I love you, son. Let's go to the theatre together. It's beyond that type of man because it was never taught to them. Doesn't mean it can't be learned. Doesn't mean you can't change, gentlemen. I don't, the brain is incredibly plastic. You can lose your sight aged fifty, and your ears will tune in by the time you're sixty. So I just don't. I don't buy it that you can't evolve and grow as a fifty-year-old. You can. That said, he look at the hours I work. Look at my hands. Look where we're going, Menorca. That's the same as saying I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're absolutely right. If my um, sons go to university, they will be. That still hasn't happened in my husband's family, so uh, uh, they'll be the first ones. Still, like there's still most lots and lots of families where that is the case. Like, well, it's going backwards now because of. Uh, this is what people don't understand in the fees debate, and it fucking winds me up. So I was one of the. I didn't really get a grant. I just got enough to pay my rent, and then I was a, I was student loan person. But even then, the loans were like like eleven grand, nothing like now. And, yeah, I got. I've got. I had eleven grand. Yeah. And, and you listen to people uh, like in Parliament or on the news going. But what you don't understand is, think of it like a graduate loan. You don't start to pay it back until you're earning forty or fifty thousand pounds a year. I understand that, but. You, what you don't understand is you've not been raised in a household to fear debt at all times, no matter what the repayment scheme is. You stay away from it. Only mugs and ponces take a loan. Therefore, what you've accidentally done is sent a message to poorer children that education is not for them because you have to take a massive loan to do it. And, that, and the, that's why the social mobility is going backwards now. That's one of the reasons why. Well, like my mother-in-law, the reason no one in my husband's family has ever done it is exactly that it wasn't for them it wasn't like you know it's like debt is without question like they had to work like you know they did midnight flits from the catalogue man do you know like and they were raised then don't get into debt like debt is dangerous and this the government giving them out a loan for the energy bill thing so many of my constituents have been in touch with me to just be like i don't want this loan i'm like don't worry they're just going to take it off you in the payments and they're like i don't want it i don't want any of it i don't like people are genuinely terrified of debt especially people who don't have a lot because it can spiral and that is terrifying but even people with a like when my when my dad died and he left he's quite modest sad really got a modest little bit of money left for my mum but my mum was was home and dry and the way she looks at it, well that can last me a decade I, I even had to because i've retrained my brain and say look you know all the people that got money in the world they invest a bit and save you got to do both you can't just hoard in your bank account because we live so fucking long these days mum you could live to a hundred you're fucking in your 50s now like think it through so i, I managed to explain to her that if we bought a house together and then I would rent her, rent her bit off her type thing while I would live in it and make her money work for her. But even it was terrifying to her 
And that's on with that's on with cash in the bank. If you it's a cultural thing. It's not even an income level thing. It's a cut it's But money follows money. You don't know that until you've got it. Um you, you like money follows you when you've got money. Like the more money I have, somehow the more money I'm being offered. Do you know what I mean? Like 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 I get a better interest rate, I get a better return, I get and it's just literally Tom, my husband, was saying to me, the worst thing is about being, like, coming from a very working class background and then uh, being, like, you know, being quite well off. He's, he's like, I can feel the Tory government benefiting me. He said, you know, I, I used to be able to feel like a Labour government would benefit people like me and they were helping people like me. And now I can feel that the, the fact that there's a Tory government is good for people like me. And he said, I shouldn't be able to feel that because... Like, you know, I've got money. I don't need, I don't need your help anymore. Thanks. I'm all right. I'm, you don't need to look after me. It's, but it is, yeah, it is. You're absolutely right that the idea of risk, it goes back to the idea of risk, is that you have to be able to speculate to accumulate. And some people just don't have a culture of speculation because the certainty isn't there. I know, and that was that was that was me done with the the Lib Dems who I'd gone to after because I avoid, I told myself I will never ever vote Labour ever again after Iraq. I made a pledge with my younger self. I just can't I can't I can't go back on it because I made that promise so solemnly to myself. So I thought, oh Lib Dem, you know they they're quite good, and Clegg he can do do a bit for things I'm interested in. And then he gave up the student fee thing. That was the end of that. Now I'm fucking recycling. I'm fucking hanging out with Lucas and all that. <laughs> You vegetarianism? Who did this to you? Is what I'm going to say. I'm the I'm a, green. I'm the only meat. I'm the only meat-eating Green Party member. <laughs> um, so, what? How would you sign off a letter to your dad? Oh my god! I wouldn't lie and say I miss you so much because he could probably still make a jet of piss come out of me by raising his voice. But I would probably say, I w- it's it's even hard to say it now. I would probably tell him I loved him. I have to say it in the third person like that. And I would, I would love to bring him back for a day, like Bill and Ted. I'll, I'll bring you back and just for a day, well, younger, you're going to be all inclusive in the Maldives. You're going to sit in my fucking stupid midlife crisis car I've bought that's out the front. Uh, and just for my dad has never been in a posh car. It, I know it sounds pathetic to, I mean, people are like trying to pay their fuel bills and shit listening to this, but I've had my time of having fuck all and I've worked my tits off tonight. I've fuck all. I'm one of the lucky ones and I would love him to have seen it. Yeah. No, that, yeah. He he would have been chuffed, although he would have found some criticism. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. And he would have mentioned the M25. My dad, yeah. if we were driving from Birmingham <laughs> to Glasgow, will factor in the traffic on the M25. He's not fucking obsessed with the traffic on the M25. The car, it's a car like... park. It's a fucking car park. <laughs> we'll be back for Russell's final letter after a short break. In the meantime, why not check out another podcast from the team behind yours sincerely? Hello, I'm here to tell you about our brand new podcast, Go Love Yourself. It's the show where we're working to love ourselves a little bit more. Yay! I'm Laura, I'm a body confidence and plus size fashion influencer. I was also on the Bake Off. You were? Why didn't you tell anybody? <laughs> and I'm Laura's best friend, Lauren, and we're going to be talking about everything from diet culture to dating, mental health to social media, and generally not caring about what people think. We've got new episodes out every Tuesday. Just search Go Love Yourself in your podcast app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Right then, so the final letter is to somebody who doesn't know the effect they've had on your life. So who would that be? Well, I'd have to send it to Lindsay, my other half, because there's no, I don't think she's in any doubt about how, how much I, I love her and fancy her and all that stuff. So, you know, there's no, there's no issues there. She knows I love her. She knows I fancy her. Spoiler rotten. And I like to think I'm pretty decent as far as a husband goes. But the, I've never really uh, sort of voiced properly and I've certainly never written down what she means to me on, on the impact she's had on my life and, and building my business and building where, where I'm sat talking to you now. I don't think she realises that. And I'm even, as, I, as I'm saying this, thinking, will I tell her to listen to this? It's a bit cringe me even saying it. It's like, it's like I'm trying to get extra special treats on a, on date night or something. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the truth. If she'd have not been that random girl in the front row of my show, 10 years ago, I think it is next month, then there's no doubt about it. The path I was on was not a good one for the business. I wasn't going to go off the rails. I got all that out of my system when I was younger, but I definitely had let, I think fame is a strong word because I wasn't like famous at that point. I was just on telly a lot, but could still go about my business. It had gone to my head and changed me temporarily in, in a very short space of time. And the problem with stand up is, it's uh, particularly my type of stand-up where I'm saying my dad, my nan, my this. This is what I think of COVID. Real working class people in the audience give me shit. It's very authentic. It's me. I'm one of you. I've lived in a county. You can trust what I'm saying because I sit with the majority of the country. I might have plenty of wedge now and I'm in the top 0.01%, but I speak. My first language is your language. And that's um, integrity. I dress normal. I look normal. And I just turned into a cunt overnight. The hair, if you just Google Russell 2011, and my, the hair alone charts how much I'd lost my way. It got high. I mean, I've got, obviously my hair's quite big anyway, but it was, it was like a high square top with a single bleached streak. <laughs> eye makeup, like where I was just basically copying Noel Fielding. Once I split up with a girlfriend, shagging anything that moves, which isn't me. And even if it was me, why like, like make a thing of it showing off about it 
being seen in the, the shit places I shouldn't have been seen, like trying to cook, get into that paparazzi. Like, and the problem with that is there's nothing wrong with that. If you're a singer, even an author could do it. If a young Ian McEwan started wearing leather trousers and eye makeup and the books were banging, people would think this guy's really eccentric. The books must be, be amazing. The problem with being either a politician or a comedian is if people smell a rat of insincerity or fakeness in the, your social makeup, they are not going to buy the words that you are delivering for you. You're delivering words about policy and promises of how you're going to change the world. I'm delivering truths about social observational comedy, but about men, women, and lives and class. The laughter is going to stop. I didn't get there. I was still very successful. The theaters were full, but they weren't as big of rooms as I should be. I was on B I had two series on BBC three. I had one series on ITV. I was on live at the Apollo. Everything you could do. I was doing decent 500 seaters. I'm not whinging. But why wasn't I playing the type of seats I'm playing now? Two, three, seven. The answer is there was a disconnect between the sort of effete rock star persona and the, anyway, let me tell you about my council flat. <laughs> the two things didn't add together. And it was like another comedian tell me that's how I was being perceived, took me aside and I didn't listen. It was only when I got on stage and there's this, I was single and there's this beautiful girl in the front with her mum and dad. And I was, it was horrible to Lindsay, as you are, as a comedian, made fun of her. She had this like fake fur coat on her lap, which I ripped on stage. She was putting on like, you know, like a posh Manchester voice, like Audrey from Coronation Street, which, <laughs> which I made fun of. And I was throwing her coat about going, oh, my minky and throwing it about. I did all this improvisation. I threw her coat back at her. And I said to my tour manager after the show, I bet I never see that girl ever again. She was fucking stunning. Did you see her? No, no, I didn't see her. I didn't think anything of it. I went about another week because I was coming out of something with another girl at the time, maybe a week or two. And I just sent one tweet and the word minky up into the Twitter sphere. I didn't hashtag the gig, nothing. I just whoosh, sent the word minky up just for, not to try and get her attention, just being silly on my phone. It was just sat in the front of my brain. I'd already put her in the camp of I'll never see that girl again. And she saw it. She, and she, she nudged her friend and went tweeting, would you? And her friend said, is this about my friend? And I was like, is she on Twitter? Yeah, here she is. Follow, follow, boom. And that's on my wedding ring. It says you have me at Minky. That's what it says on the inside. Oh, my God. What, she, a, what a meet cute. You should write wrong about that. And she just she just sat me down once we were in love and dating properly and everything and said, look, you basically, you're, you're a good-looking lad. You don't dress like that. You look like a tit. Wear this you know, maybe consider changing your life up a bit. And that's what made me change my, change my management. My man, shout out to my old management. You were great. But it was just times to, to change things up. I wanted to be with a manager that would more put me down and tell me no when I was doing these silly things. And that looks shit. You're doing QI. This is what you wear. You wear a jacket with a I needed to be told. And Lindsay was the female that took me and told me how to be. She also calls me out if, I, if I'm on camera and I'd spoken a bit abruptly. She's like, you know, you're being rude. I had no idea I was being abrupt and rude. And I'll go back and apologize. She's told me to follow up things. She's made me more confident at parties. I was a bit more standing in the corner or standing with someone I know now. She's circling and mingling. She's a fucking money-making machine <laughs> on my behalf, but she doesn't, she does not realize it. She's like, oh, I wish, you know, I haven't got my own thing. It's all about you. If you left me, I wouldn't have any money. What's my property business is only just taking I don't think she realizes that she is this business as, as, as well, because the way I dress, the way I am, the way I talk about, the way I comport myself, the projects I take now and the things I do, it's making money and, make, and making me successful and making me more likable. Well, it's, it's showing who I really am. That's what I did today. That's what I'm really like. But nerves plus a bit of money and some ego have turned me into someone else temporarily. Nerves are, I mean, I, I mean, almost certainly 
you were a bit of a cunt, I, you know. I mean, like, you know, I'm not like, I, I, I won't dress it up as anything else. But some people, when they're nervous, and this, people don't take account of this, some people get very shy and withdrawn, and some people grow. So I grow when I'm anxious in a space, I grow, and it's grotesque, and, and it can be very, very grotesque. And you do need people to rein, I, I need people to rein me in without question. Particularly when you're, pro- as you're going through it now, your profile's going up. And the problem is if you've grown up in an area where you never expected anyone to look at you or give, I suppose it depends how you've been parented as well. It depends how much confidence has been put in. But I was raised to believe, you know, life will be shit, boy. It will be a struggle. You won't do anything. So just get a trade. No one wants to look at you. So when everyone's suddenly looking at you, you can't believe it. That's what made me turn into a C-U-N-T because I couldn't, to me, in my mind, it was innocent. I was like, oh, I'm going to wear eyeliner. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to twirl around. I'm going to show off. I'm going to dance. Everyone, everyone look at me. I can't believe everyone's looking at me. It was an innocent inner child loving the attention. Girls, everyone wants to shag me. I didn't even kiss a girl at school. <laughs> I did not even, I left school without using my kiss ginity, let alone anything else. And then, and then girls were cute. Like I could just literally go into a bar and a fit girl would want to shag me. I couldn't believe it. So I couldn't, I literally, if I was not gigging, I was incapable of just having a night at home, having a pizza and a onesie and watching a sci-fi movie. You can't believe people want to talk to you. You can't believe people give a fuck who you are. And then it manifests itself in the hair, the eyes, the fashion and the shagging. And before you know it, you're like a budget Russell Brand. And I'm like, that has to stop. There's only one Russell Brand. I don't want to be the budget version. Yeah. I mean, I feel like he needed a Lindsay to intervene. They tried, bless her. And he's got a good lady with him now. But he was already doing that thing. So I just sort of em- you know, it's pathetic. A lot of people call Russell in comedy. I'd never thought of it until yeah. this exact moment. And you've mentioned two already in this. I know, this. I know, I know. I know. Anyway, anyway so I think, I think if I, I should probably... I should, maybe I should hang up the mic from this and go and tell Lindsay this with a glass of wine. Tell her, tell her to her face because she's going through a bit of a, a thing at the moment where she's got, she's got a property business. It's starting nicely, a fashion business. And she's like, well, what am I doing in my, I don't think it's like, it's a teamwork. I don't look at us as separate. You know, we don't nothing. We don't have our own shit. Everything's joined. Partnership. So how would you sign off a letter to Lindsay then? Uh, I love you. See you upstairs. <laughs> so much for sharing your people with us they are if you if you do become if you do become prime minister one day just which i do i do hope and i would definitely vote like labor then because actually you're someone i actually believe and believe in not blowing smoke but i all i ask is one thing is that i can have the part of this recorded zoom chat where you say there's no doubt about it you're a bit of a cunt on the day you're elected <laughs> I will get millions of... I'll share the revenue with you and then give it to you so I can lobby for illegal things in my interest. Yeah, I'll I'll give you a PPE contract. You can have it. Yeah. Not not the first time I've said Kent on this podcast and I I feel like I've I've dodged it so far and nobody seemed to mind. No, no, it would be such... That would be a classic. So I'll sit sit on that. You will, but there's no doubt about it. I, re- I reckon you'll go to the top. You've got to, man. You and fucking Ra- Rainer as the ch- as the Chancellor. No one have missed you. You know, people frequently mistake us for each other just because we don't look anything alike. She's from Manchester. I'm from Birmingham. But on the news one time, I think it was literally on the BBC, they said to Angela Rayner, so how are people reacting to this in Birmingham? And she said, well, I don't know, you'd probably have to ask Jess Phillips that, not me. But just because we're both a bit common, people think we're the same person. Yeah, I, think you, I think you'd be a good partnership. She's good at maths because she'd be a good chancellor. <laughs> 
fuck off, you fucking Essex bastard. You was like, I would never say Tory scum. I said Tory wankers. <laughs> it's a different person. <laughs> well, right, thank you go. so much for your time. Go and tell Lindsay you love her. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.